Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. Hello listeners of Dig Life Deep everywhere. We have some more exciting changes coming up soon, so please stay tuned. Dr. Louis Perron is a successful political scientist and consultant many of you may never have heard of. He works in a sense in the shadows of political campaigns across the globe. He is based in Switzerland but travels to wherever the political action is these days. Dr. Perron's track record includes winning dozens of election campaigns worldwide from big city mayors to presidents and Dr. Louis Perron Ron is my guest coming up. We talk about the art and science of his professional practice, how it has and hasn't changed in this age of social media, political polarization and a rise in global tensions and anxiety. Of course, our interview could not avoid talking about the presidential election in the United States. I mean, uh, U.S. presidential elections are to uh, politics what the, the World Series or the World Cup is to sports. We have an incumbent. Uh, incumbents often win re-elections. But in this case, we have an incumbent that is uh, clearly vulnerable. And I'm not saying this because of the matchup in the polls. Well, uh, Donald Trump is a classic example of your biggest strengths is your biggest weakness. The media environment, the way we absorb information has changed. I think some of the uh, strategic fundamentals of campaigns have not. And Trump is a, a very good example. And I think you're right. It has been emulated around the world. We'll have lots more from political consultant Dr. Louis Perron in a moment. First, it's time for another segment of Future Shock 2.0 with the famed workforce trends expert, Ira Wolf here. We return to the topic of the drop-off, yes, drop-off, it's quite stunning, in student enrollment sweeping across American college campuses and educational establishments. Overall, enrollments at colleges nationwide, where does that trend up, down or holding its own? It's down overall and significantly so. I mean, one is the tuition. Tuitions have just gone through the roof. Then, you know, you have the whole thing. I mean, there was a hope that people can go to school and, you know, if they, they, they didn't have to pay their loans back. Uh, and there's a lot of people that have loans that are in that 23 and older group that dropped out of school because they got a job and the economy was booming. And, and now they're back. They want to go back and finish their degree, but now they're faced with they don't have the money because they got to pay back the loan. There's so many moving pieces here and nobody's really addressing it. Now, if, if we're talking about it and I'm surprising you with this trend and you talk to a lot of people, then it, it's just it's falling off the radar. So would you put a number on it? It's down by 10, 20% or more over the past five years, decade, any any kind of number on it? Yeah, and this is just my gut. I'm going to say 20%. Depends on in which region are we talking or we're exactly. talking about which jobs. Yeah, I'm going to say on average, it was probably about 20%, but uh, there may be over the past five yeah. years. Yeah, well, certainly years. during the pandemic. Yeah. And it, and it just hasn't recovered. There was a school outside of Villanova that I'm, I just happen to be familiar with because it's been around for a while and, I, it, and it's in the area. You know, that just recently closed down. Villanova bought the land. Um, there's, I, I just read there was a story in New York State 
upstate New York. Uh, and they were going to go bankrupt. And then they got some endowment and they blew through that like in a year and the enrollment was down. And, and the, the land is worth a lot. Apparently it's in horse country and they had an equine program up there. So they're repurposing some of these things, um, a lot of the, the the college's worth, it should have been in the value of their students, uh, but the worth became in real estate and buildings uh, and other assets. Uh, again, I, I, it's not even a, a claim that it's mismanaged or, or whatever it is, but trends are changing. Um, yeah. But we also have to look at those demographics that we talk about so long. We have a declining birth rate, declining fertility rate. You know, immigration um, is, is, is still a problem. We don't have that large, large young population or middle-aged population eligible to go to work. There's just a lack of people compared to, you know, what the infrastructures are and then the affordability. There's so much. I mean, it's in every publication and a lot of research. Is the ROI from having a, a bachelor's degree or, or even greater worth it? Thank you, Ira Wolf. More from Ira Wolf coming up soon. Mark your calendars for Wednesday, February the 11th at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, that's New York Time, when I'll be a guest on a live webinar of Ira Wolf's top rated geek skeezers and googleization podcast across many platforms linkedin facebook twitter and i'll be a guest along with matt van alstein co-founder and managing partner of odeon capital group who i also team up with for the odeon capital conversations podcast on apple google spotify and more so that's a live webinar and special episode of ira wolf's geek ski and Googleization on Wednesday, February 28th at 11 a.m. ET Eastern Time. Don't miss it. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. Some of you may already know of Dr. Louis Perron. If you are active in the minefields of politics, he is an amazing resource of political campaign history, strategies, planning, polling, and attitudinal research. In his latest book, Beat the Incumbent, Proven Strategies and Tactics to Win Elections, Dr. Perron lays it all out. And he is my guest on this episode of Dig Life Deep. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Dr. Louis Perron, welcome to my show. You're a political consultant, a political scientist, now an author, a TEDx speaker, and you help politicians, candidates get elected to local and higher office across the globe. Welcome to my show. Thank you for having me. You are based in Switzerland. Yes, I, I'm a Swiss. Not the Alps. I, I always think of the Alps has been a really beautiful, pristine place. You probably go ski on the Alps, I'm sure. It, it is very beautiful, uh, but but I'm 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 living in Zurich. But in my spare time, go to Davos, for example. Switzerland's a fascinating place. has a, has a great history and a center of global finance. So I, I, I'm going to ask you just to get our conversation opened up here. We have a very hot election coming up in November in America. Uh, between the incumbent, 
which is the title of a new book you have out. Not the full title, but we'll get to that later. And the likely um, challenger, we believe, will be the former president, who is still known as president at formal occasions, Donald Trump. How do you handicap that election? Because you're, you, you look at all the polling numbers, you talk to a lot of very influential people and ordinary people. You must be fascinated by what's going on. Oh, yes, I am. I mean, uh, U.S. presidential elections are to uh, politics what the, I guess the World Series or the World Cup is to sports. It's just the biggest, most professional, most expensive fight. And we've had really a series of uh, presidential elections that were really awfully close. So that makes it even more interesting. Now, in this case, we have an incumbent. Uh, incumbents often win re-elections, but in this case, we have an incumbent that is uh, clearly vulnerable. And I'm not saying this because of the matchup in the polls. I don't think this is really meaningful months before an election, but I say this because of the underlying dynamics. I mean, one question, for example, in the surveys is, is the country going into the right direction or is it off the wrong track? Are people satisfied with the job Joe Biden is doing or are they rather dissatisfied? And those questions, like measuring the underlying dynamics, they are not so good for Joe Biden. Now, he has time to catch up, but not a lot of time. So actually, uh, any generic challenger uh, would be in a pretty good position here. It's still early in the election, but uh, the numbers, the polling numbers for Biden in terms of his popularity is at an historic low compared to previous presidents. At the same time, we have a very polarized nation, the United States, but there's a lot of big ticket items on the agenda. We've got the border crisis. We have the economy, despite the fact that we're creating jobs like gangbusters, at the same time, we also have a lot of Americans who are living paycheck to paycheck. The latest data shows that 60% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. We have student loans. We have um, gender ideology politics. We have violence in our streets. We have the fentanyl crisis and, again, the border crisis. And a certain level of angst set against a world which is beset by war in the Middle East and in the Ukraine. And so a lot of people are quite worried about it. Doesn't bode well for Biden. On the other hand, there are lots of Americans who do not want to see Donald Trump re-elected. Yes. I mean, the problem for Joe Biden is that uh, on paper, the economy looks uh, pretty good, actually. Um, the problem is that Americans don't feel it. And I would like to add that some uh, partisan uh, media don't want them to feel it. And so that's a, a tricky situation. What are you going to do if you're the incumbent? Are you going to blow your own horn and try to change the, the public mood? Or are you like feeling their pain? And I would say that the answer depends on the time that you have available. As an incumbent president or prime minister, you actually have a unique opportunity to shape media and to influence the public. So I would say from the, the State of the Union until probably the convention, uh, Team Biden will try to convince the public that the economy is better than what they think. Now, this has to be done uh, very carefully. 
in the right tone, in sync with what people really feel and where they are emotionally. But I think that's what Team Biden is trying to do. Now, at a certain point, and I guess that point will be the convention, the time, uh, the window is closing. And then it's just the one strategy left, which is the counter offense. And that's what you mentioned before is with Donald Trump. I mean, for Democrats and Joe Biden, it's really a gift from heaven. I think think it's probably the only Republican that Joe Biden can beat. Mm. Uh, Because what Team Biden will do is try to make this not a referenda about his term, about his accomplishments, but try to turn this into a binary choice. And uh, I think that's the only way he can win re-election. And in that sense, it's very noteworthy to me that he's on purpose trying to run against uh, Trump and MAGA Republicans. When we look at the Biden and uh, Trump election campaign, and again, it looks like uh, Trump is going to be uh, nominated as the candidate, um, unless Nikki Haley uh, picks up some ground. We could talk about that. What's positive, negative about our campaign. But this campaign brings up a lot of what you discuss in your writings, in your new book, and what you do as a consultant. Surveys, polling, um, social media, campaign funding, messaging, strategy, um, how you use the media. What's your take on all of that? If you look at Trump and how he uses social media. He can fund his own campaign um, and his messaging versus Joe Biden. Anything interesting emerge? Well, uh, Donald Trump is a classic example of your biggest strengths is your biggest weakness. So in politics, that's often the case. So in that sense, Trump is not new, but it's just a really an extreme case of it where I think he brings in people into the political process and especially the Republican arena that otherwise would not vote Republican, that are very enthusiastic, that would swim to Europe with him. But the problem is they can all only vote once. And what makes him strong and appealing with his base is also what tremendously hurts him with swing voters. And so that's where I think if I were to um, uh, advise him in a very hypothetical situation, I would tell him that he also needs to um, reinvent himself a bit because public opinion has changed since 2016 when he last won. Uh, His opponent is different from 2016. Uh, the, The mood has changed and he has changed. He is now sort of de facto also an incumbent. It's an incumbent versus an incumbent race. So he needs to reinvent himself. And in particular, he needs to reach out to swing voters, something that has become somewhat unfashionable in American politics. I have a whole um, chapter about it in my book, is the secrets to selling change. Uh, People like change. It sounds great. But you also want to be assured Uh, You need assurance. You need to make people comfortable with voting for change. And I think in the case of Donald Trump, there is quite a number of people, uh, apart from his base, that not only disagree with Trump, but who are really scared of Trump. Mm -hmm. So he needs an inoculation and outreach strategy. Do I think it's likely to happen? No, I don't think so. But I think that's what he needs to do if he wants to win. 
if you look at the Trump phenomena, if you will, it seems to me that that's been sort of emulated globally. We have a lot of polarizing is not the right word, but candidates of that ilk. We saw in Latin America the election of Millet, um, libertarian um, economist who is setting out to turn the Argentine economy around with runaway inflation and just problems that have been going on there for decades. We see the emergence of uh, very strong candidates in Europe. At the same time, we have a very ideologically divided population. Especially Trump is guaranteed votes from those who are pro-family values, pro-life, let's say, pro-free enterprise who want the border closed, uh, whereas Biden, on the other hand, is guaranteed a certain cluster of votes who would be um, more liberal on a lot of those issues um, and very open-minded on a lot of the economic issues. Um, are we in a new era as far as all of that goes? Have you seen anything like this historically? Does, is there any period in history this compares to? I often think maybe the 1930s. Well, uh, history repeats itself, but it doesn't. So, I mean, the, let, let me put it this way. I think the environment in which campaigns take place, the media environment, the tools available, uh, certainly the media environment, the way we absorb information has changed. I think some of the uh, strategic fundamentals of campaigns have not and I mean, uh, Trump is a, a very good example. And I think you're right. It has been emulated around the world. And one factor here is that public opinion has become more volatile. Uh, people are increasingly cynical. And I think that's really, I mean, I've known that for a long time working in uh, developing countries. It's now the exact same thing in the Western world. People are very frustrated and cynical about all politicians. And I think that's why they are um, uh, more willing to take a risk. And that's why there are more upset elections. I mean, if you look somebody like Argentina, yes, people are willing to take a risk because things are so bad. <laughs> so yeah. why not take a chance? No, and you're running out of options. So it's the last option standing. And I think that happens in many countries. Another thing I'd like to say about um, people like Trump and people in Western Europe, like uh, often called populists. Um, the, the problem, I think, with the establishment politicians and the mainstream media, the big mistake that they make is to ignore that often those candidates actually have a point. They may exaggerate, they may say it in a, a for us outreachous way, but if you think about Trump, I mean, whether it's about... Uh, the World Health Organization, whether it's about trade, whether it's about immigration, whether it's about the dependency of Germany on Russian oil, mm. uh, on many things he has a point. Mm. Uh, that, that, mm. you know, and I think the media uh, and the, the opposition is taking a, a dramatic shortcut here by just being outraged alone and not addressing the point. I'm fascinated. I want to move on from Trump and Biden, but I bring it up because um, it kind of um, puts into a lot of what you wrote about in your new book, Beat the Incumbent. It's a great read. I, I highly recommend anybody interested in politics or running for office or just a mainstream reader, pick it up. It's great. And it's not... Um, 
you don't take everybody down a, a rabbit hole. You explain stuff in, in a very clear and concise way. But um, Trump coined this phrase or his um, campaign managers, somebody did, make America great again. It's so catchy, whether we like it or not, because you have a section in your new book, Beat the Incumbent, by coming up with a concise, coherent um, campaign message. Tell us about that. Yes, I mean, it's absolutely true. Uh, people always think that money is the most important factor in a campaign, and money is indeed one of the important factors. I tend to think, though, that it's overestimated, and I think the importance of a clear, coherent, catchy message that is in sync with public demand is much underestimated. And you need a message that is a narrative why people should vote for you and not the other guy or one of the other guys. And the slogan should summarize that message in a catchy way. Uh, I learned that actually 20 years ago at GW, and it's still very true. And make G America GW being George Washington. GW? Yes, George Washington yep. University. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. And I mean, for Make America Great Again, what is really uh, the important thing in the slogan is, again, that's what's giving it uh, the meaning. No, it's not just an empty phrase, but Make America Great Again is actually what gives it the meaning and the texture and the punch. So I totally agree. Yes, it's one of the greatest... Uh, campaign slogans in the history of uh, election campaigns. Louis Perron, let me just talk about your work. So you work for and have done work for presidents, lawmakers, council members. You've worked across the globe. And I'm speaking to you from um, the US. I'm in the New York area. And you're in Indonesia right now. It's at past 10 p.m. at night and it's early morning here. So I'm sure you could be doing other things besides talking to me, but we're enjoying this conversation. <laughs> so tell us about your work. You, you're not going to reveal, because you don't do it in the book, you don't tell us, we can guess, I suppose, who these big shots are. Who are they? Yeah, well, yeah, you can take a guess. And <laughs> uh, uh, there are even some hints in the book. But yes, I think that political consulting is a very... Um, uh, personal matter that involves a lot of trust and I think by keeping my clients names secret it makes me a more uh, efficient uh, a more effective uh, consultant and I do so in interviews on my social media uh, and in the book I try not to reveal even my uh, political convictions uh, well of course I am a very very political person now, the thing is, actually, I always thought that I would be a candidate myself. Uh, when I became a teenager, I was fascinated with politics and I thought that I would uh, run myself. Now, the problem is, as beautiful uh, the nature in Switzerland is, Switzerland is really boring to death for politics. I mean, I, I could bet none of your reader has ever read anything about politics in Switzerland. And there's a reason, because nothing ever happens, which <laughs> may be really good for the country. It may serve the country really well. But I was really torn. And actually, it was in the US uh, when I studied in GW 20 years ago, when I found out that the role behind the scenes 
is uh, much more interesting and allows me uh, to pursue my passion for politics, but live a, a, an international life and not <laughs> be constantly in Switzerland and uh, torn down to Swiss politics. And so I came back from the US with the plan to become a global consultant. My and off I went. My understanding of Switzerland is has the Canton system, right? It's very much federalized, very local level politics. It's very granular. Yes, uh, very uh, uh, federal. And even at the national level, we have a system of power sharing. So we have a sort of unique government actually in the world where seven people together are the government and are mm -hmm. the president. So it's all about power sharing between parties, between uh, regions, between linguistic regions, and, and we have direct democracy. So we vote on referenda issues all the time. And this, of course, makes elections really uh, boring. So <laughs> I, I they're have all, no they're choice. All up, they're all in the Alps, skiing <laughs> in the Alps. <laughs> I, I had no choice but uh, become an international consultant. <laughs> I'm going to ask you, maybe I'll get it out of the way right away, um, because I want to deep a little uh, deeper into people you've represented without revealing names. Your core values. What, can, what are your core values, your social values? Uh, are you a religious person? I mean, all of those things I know you leave off the table when you're doing polling and so on, but I'm sure candidates might be curious and the public. Well, when, when I was a teenager, uh, it's a decades ago, I was uh, on the left. I was actually active in a youth party from the left. Uh, over the years, I have evolved quite a bit. Um, I think uh, uh, I, I like to say that I know too much about politics to probably be comfortable with uh, an easy term, left or right, mm. even though I guess in the US, I mean, probably I would vote for Democrats. I mean, I, I, I don't know a European <laughs> who would not vote Democrat in the US. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So for us, that's pretty easy. So I guess it depends where and on the situation. But of course, I have also limitations uh, personally in my work. I mean, I, I would not uh, work for uh, candidates that are not democratic like i don't have democratic values yeah. mm -hmm. and there wouldn't be any work for me i mean in uh, uh and, and i wouldn't work want to work for somebody that i'm sure will really ruin his country and and i mean especially in developing countries that can really be the case i mean there were people who really ruined <laughs> their countries so yeah that uh i don't want and i think in a country where there is work for me. Uh, there would need to be some form of democracy, maybe not as vital and 100% as in uh, in the Western world, even though there it's not 100%. But there needs to be some form of real competition, right? Otherwise, uh, everything I do is not relevant. You would represent candidates on either side of the aisle, left, right? Are, are you picking? Yes, uh, I, I have uh, actually worked for people on the left and on the right. I also tried to write a book in a way that is um, really applicable for challenges, both on the left and the right. So the, for me personally, it would depend on the person. Your first client ran for city council where? And wh where was that? 
Well, it was in parallel. I mean, I started in Switzerland okay. uh, when I came back from the US and then pretty soon ventured into work in uh, Southeast Asia. And your latest accomplishment was winning a presidential election where? Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> in a country where there was a big historic uh, win by one of the presidential candidates. Okay, so I'll keep guessing. Maybe by the end of the show, we'll have that figured out. But uh, kudos to you. Um, you have a great section in the opening of your book, Beat the Incumbent, Proven Strategies and Tactics to Win Elections. And it's about now President Zelensky in Ukraine and how he won. You mentioned his celebrity status, um, and that's one of the advantages that he had but celebrity in and of itself doesn't guarantee success. But you make the point, plain and simple, journalists will gladly cover celebrities since fame is one of the main drivers of today's media. Zelensky uh, was hit up with um, some charges of scandal, trumped up as it were, which he dealt with quite effectively. And in a very, because he's a comedian by profession, although he doesn't tell too many jokes in the terrible, sad situation in Ukraine. We understand that. And he's evolved into this amazing president, if we can believe all this. Just tell us about that, Zelensky's campaign. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a great campaign. And uh, it was interesting when I started to do research for my book, which was, of course, before the war, there was actually um, not that much information available in English about Zelensky or in any other uh, foreign language. I uh, actually have done work in Ukraine. I know the country quite a bit. So I, I always was very fascinated with the way he ran his campaign. Um uh, because he was uh, an outsider, he was a challenger, and instead of sort of apologizing for his disadvantages as a challenger, he doubled down on them. I have this chapter in the book, like, taking your uh, uh, challenger advantages to the next level, and he's a great example on how to do it. For example, um, he said, I don't have a party platform. So people uh, started attacking him. Said, you got to tell us what, what you stand for. You don't have a platform. You don't even know policy. So what he said is, okay, usually um, politicians promise the sky and the moon mm -hmm. uh, and don't deliver anything. Uh, I will do it the other way around. You tell me what you want me to do and I'll try to deliver. And actually people really started to make uh, suggestions for his program, quote unquote, and, uh, I mean, he really um, uh, doubled down on his outsider status. There was also this famous line, the debate, when he debated Poroshenko. And uh, uh, he said to Poroshenko, the incumbent, I'm not your opponent. I'm your verdict. Yeah. I mean, he was... Uh, it was a great line. It was a great a line. A great line from a great communicator. Mm. So who actually really... Um, ran a very effective and professional campaign. It sometimes looked informal, uh, but it was actually a, a very, from a media point of view, very well-run uh, campaign. Some of our greatest leaders in history are best known were great communicators. And we only have to think of the example of Ronald Reagan. 
he may have been classified as a B-rated actor or whatever, but he had an effective communication strategy and skill set. Uh, absolutely. Another uh, great challenger. And uh, I mean, also, uh, he, he's an example, um, a, a bit more traditional route, mm. uh, but was a governor and won re-election as governor. And I think that often makes very good challenges. He has also lost a campaign in 76, mm -hmm. uh, actually, which uh, uh, may be the most similar to the one we're having now with Haley and Trump, because Reagan was against uh, of course, an incumbent president at the time, a Republican, and lost the nomination. So great politicians actually often lose. They often lose a race early in their career and learn a lot from losing. I mean, you learn from winning, um, but you also learn from losing. And I guess it makes them more humble and uh, they adjust and then win the next time around. You mentioned Haley. If you were her consultant or brought in to consult the Haley campaign, what would you say at this point she should do differently to pick up some ground? At this point in time, I would probably be very hesitant to accept uh, the the gig because mm. I'm afraid time is running out for her. Mm. I mean, the sort of campaign that she was running should have started much, much earlier. I mean, she was so hesitant to take on Trump. Uh, sort of tip, wasting a lot of time tiptoeing around him. And I think if you're running uh, a challenger campaign like she was actually, uh, you need time. I mean, successful challengers, they need time to overcome their disadvantages. So, and the Republican Party traditionally is not very open for challengers. Uh, it's usually, I mean, I can't think of any example actually where it was not the guy who was ahead uh, at the beginning of the election year who ended up winning the nomination. So she would have needed much more time to change the soul of the Republican mm. Party. Now, I guess her best bet is uh, Trump's health or legal problems mm -hmm. but in uh, normal circumstances in a normal campaign uh, I, I don't really see mm. the Republican Party being willing to make that of a dramatic change I, I don't see what new information she could give Trump voters that would make them change their mind if I had one observation about Haley uh, or maybe two her policy platform is fascinating it's 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 quite interesting, and uh, she's great um, on detail. She's really well prepared in debates, but she strikes me as being very uptight as a politician and maybe takes herself too seriously and doesn't have a strong likability factor with, with some voters. But I, in her defense, if that were the only one, I think that would come over time. Maybe you still see a bit of, uh, uh, I mean, she's new to this at the mm -hmm. national level. No, I yep. mean, not saying she's unprepared, but you see a little bit, uh, uh, maybe not so much routine. Let, let me put it this way. But I mean, I think uh, those are minor things that could be corrected. Uh, I actually wrote a piece for The Hill that I think she would have been a much better general election candidate for Republicans than Trump. 
Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. My guest is Dr. Louis Perron, a political scientist, consultant, and TEDx speaker based in Switzerland, and author of the new book, Beat the Incumbent, Proven Strategies and Tactics to Win Elections. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Now, you have a section in your book about challengers taking on the incumbent, what advantages they would have, what resources they can marshal. And you mentioned they could bring up their past background, maybe at the local level where they had outstanding success in doing something for the municipality or whatever. So I immediately think of Ron DeSantis, this extraordinary governor in Florida who won in a landslide, and yet he couldn't translate that into the national stage. From the start off, the get-go, his campaign just went downhill. Yes. And uh, I mean, he is a really very, (laughs) in a sad way, good example. I remember the election night when he won re-election and I saw his speech and his family and I was thinking, wow, that's... Mm -hmm. uh, uh, we have a general election candidate here that would just clobber Joe Biden because he looks like the future. He like the I mean, it would have been perfect. No, uh, has a record, has won for re-election. But yes, I mean, it's not a guarantee uh, winning re-election as a governor that you would be a great candidate at the national level. It's a good preparation, but it's not a guarantee. And what DeSantis didn't have in Florida is the Trump factor in that sense that, again, I think he was tiptoeing around Trump and then didn't have a market. He lost both markets. He lost the Trump market and the the anti-Trump market. So you need a clear message and a clear, um, uh, how to say, you have to win the quarterfinals of the anti-Trumps, no? (laughs) Because in the end, it will be one against Trump. So he 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 didn't have a, a market to play to. He tried to please all, and then had nobody. I mean, it's a dramatic case, but uh, I, I guess it it happens. Louis Perron, uh, you say in your book, "Beat the Incumbent: Why People Run for Office." Is this a bit cynical of you? Power, ego, money—that's it. Uh, I don't mean it in a, uh, a negative way, though. What I mean to say is we're all humans. And I think even people who care strongly about issues, and there are people, uh, they they need power because otherwise it's just uh, pretending. Uh, and that, mm. that's even worse. So I think even if you care about issues, and I think many do, then you need power to affect uh uh, change. No, actually, there is this line I quote also from Tony Blair, who who said, in, "When you're in the opposition, you um you 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 say, what am I going to say tomorrow? When you govern, you think, what am I going to do tomorrow? Mm-hmm. So sometimes people in the opposition become so uh, pleased just by talking and lose the real appetite for power, and that might be more 
honorable, but not better because you cannot affect change. And actually, I'm trying to um, correct that impression of the Machiavellian a little bit in, in the end of the book. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I do think that uh, uh, that it matters who we vote for and that while maybe you cannot limit, there are limitations to what good things you can do in office, but certainly uh, uh, getting the wrong people out of office can prevent a lot of damage from happening. That one, after decades in politics, I'm still 100% sure about. Because so, some people feel so strongly on certain issues, you know, with the gender wars and gender um, uh, identity politics and so on, uh, pro-life politics, that might be their catch-all reason for running for office, or they want to just get rid of an incumbent who's so corrupt and stinks to the high heavens by this candidate's thinking that I'm going to run anyway. I'm just doing it for the greater good. But then mm. that goes and to your point that they need power, obviously. They, 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 yes. And I mean, it's okay to be passionate about issues and politics and people. Uh, but I, I do think the polarization has gotten a bit out of control and uh, is not so good for democracy and good for our countries. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I feel people now are willing to sacrifice so much of our core values. Uh, I mean, uh, just to destroy the, the opponent that I think it's going too far. And mm-hmm. frankly, I think social media with many of the advantages that it has, and I'm using it myself, uh, Twitter and LinkedIn, etc. It has not helped uh, on that front because people have just become so um, uh, free to bash and trash politicians anonymously. I mean, uh, and in that sense, I mean, for the polarization, the the voters are not innocent because they keep electing uh, those who scream the loudest. Mm -hmm. The media is not innocent because the media covers conflict and often gives uh, a microphone to those who have the loudest voice instead of maybe the one who has the most important voice. And frankly, politicians are to blame also. So uh, there are many factors here at play for the polarization. But I'm also hopeful that sooner or later, the political demand for somebody who can actually get things done, will be there again. You have a great section in your book also about, you mentioned him earlier, Tony Blair. He, he in effect, reinvented or re, uh, reimagined the Labour Party. So he had the new Labour Party and he got some pushback from traditionalists. But ultimately, he won in a landslide. Um, he was an interesting study, which you cover very well in your book. Yes, it's from a while ago, but I think that's why it's desperately needed because reaching out to the center has really become somewhat unfashionable. We have become so accustomed to play to the uh, partisan media uh, that we have forgotten to reach out to those who actually often decide elections, which are uh, the swing voters in the middle. And the UK is a great... Uh, playgrounds to learn about this and get inspiration about this because, of course, it's really all about the swing between the two major parties. Uh, It's a very classic, or or at least used to be until recently, a very classic two-party system. And, uh, I mean, in that sense, Blair's campaign, you could say that 
the entire purpose of his campaign was actually an outreach to the center. And in that sense, it's highly inspirational, highly relevant for today, because, I mean, it's the the last time the, the Labour Party won elections in the yep. UK. So true. And Clinton, on some level, was similar, in my thinking anyway, as Tony Blair. He reached different constituencies and operated from the centre, mostly. Yeah, I mean, now Tony Blair is not very popular anymore in the UK yeah. uh, because of the war in Iraq. Uh, even though actually people forget that he won re-election after the war in Iraq. And he he won actually a re-election, I mean, like nobody did for the Labour Party. So I think um, uh, Labour leaders in Britain ought to look back at his uh, successful cases. The greatest challenger campaign ever was when Barack Obama ran for president in 2008 you write in your book, Beat the Incumbent. Why do you say that? And you go on to note that, would this be fair that a turning point in that campaign was the collapse of Lehman Brothers in September 2008 when Obama was facing up against John McCain? Absolutely. It was a turning point um, because it made the economy uh, the number one issue in the campaign. And uh, you could argue that um, uh, since the, there was an economic meltdown, uh, this, of course, helped the challenger, which was Obama, and hurt McCain, which was not the incumbent, but from the incumbent party. Uh, I would like to argue, though, with this, that um, the fact that it helped Obama so much was not uh, a law of nature or uh, automatic but also dependent on how he and his team handled the crisis, because I think he uh, came across as settled, as very serious, mm. as somebody, despite actually having little experience, you would trust to manage such a crisis. And on the other hand, of course, McCain uh, committed real big mistakes as a candidate. No, I mean, yeah, <laughs> he said that, uh, the fundamentals of the economy are strong mm -hmm. and that uh, would become probably one of the most brutal days of his life as a politician because the Obama campaign just brutally used that statement against him and they defended change against Team McCain. So yes, the circumstances helped. Uh, of course, Obama was a great messenger. He was a great politician, a great communicator. But uh, the way the campaign handled it, the technical things are not to be neglected. And that's why I devote an entire chapter uh, to the campaign in the book. I'd like to talk about the nuts and bolts, uh, the meat and potatoes, the, the, the mechanics, if you will, of uh, winning or running for office, because you devote a, a section in your book to all of that too. Polling, social media, it's a big part of what you do. And you say the bigger the sample size in polling, the smaller the margin of error. I guess that's, um, nobody would dispute that. You would need, you need a, a minimum of 600 respondents. And you engage what's known as qualitative opinion research focus group discussions. Tell us about it. I'm using market research, so surveys and focus groups, not to predict who is winning, 
but to guide a politician and a campaign so that with respect to their message and their targeting, they can make informed decisions. Now, in the US, I think the polling market is quite um, screwed up. Uh, actually, every election, especially when Trump is on the yeah. ballot, uh, they're always wrong and quite off quite considerably. And I think the, the problem is that people really um, try to weigh raw data and always claim to have better algorithms on how they weigh the raw data. And I actually rarely weigh data. I just invest a lot of time and attention into real random sampling. So in uh, some of the uh, developing countries where I work, we actually do surveys house to house. In you person. physically go door to door. House to house in person, which is the slowest, uh, most old school, most expensive way to do a survey. But guess what? It's by, by far the most accurate. Mm. Uh, so, and then we complement the numbers with the qualitative research, so-called focus group discussions, um, because it, while statistics and algorithms are important, I think uh, good market research also has a lot to do with listening to voters. I think if you're having something like Brexit or Trump, where people are so emotional, I think actually listening to voters, what they're saying, how they're saying things, what they don't say, uh, might be as important as the numbers. I say the survey gives you the numbers, the focus groups tell you the why behind the numbers. Mm -hmm. And I combine the two in order to guide the campaign. Because voters as a group can be quite fickle. We have um, the swing voters. We hear about the swing voters all the time in America. And then those who are settled on one side or the other. And then we hear about the, the swing states. So getting that kind of rich data, I I, I should imagine is enormously helpful. You have a section on and you talk about social media and some of what you said surprised me because I kind of always assumed that if you have a massive social media footprint on TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, wow, the incumbent or the candidates taking you on has no presence. Well, you have an automatic built-in advantage. You, you think it's a bit more nuanced though? Yes. I mean, yes, social media is a factor. It's a tool that I would certainly use in almost all campaigns. I would not overestimate its impact, however. And it uh, sort of uh, uh, fascinates me that most people who are enthusiastic about the impact of social media in election campaigns are people who make their living with social media. There are actually few academic studies that really show much of an impact. So uh, I am, yes, I am more nuanced in this respect. I think, yes, it's a factor. However, um, it's a great tool to mobilize your own base, you know, to engage with your base, to activate your base, maybe help turn out the base, but there actually, I think, offline activities are already needed. Uh, that said, it's not a good tool to convince people because nobody goes online um, to really listen to different people and make 
an objective, uh, make up their mind objectively. I mean, it's, it brings us back to what I said before. Social media is actually a driver of the polarization. People go online to express their emotions, to like what they already agree with it, to get appalled and outraged about things they disagree with. I think it's actually also a factor why scandals, uh, things scandalize much faster than earlier in the old days and even things that would not have been a scandal in the old days now are scandals so i don't think social media is a great tool to convince people speaking about centrist about swing voters it's a tool to mobilize your own base but even when you mobilize you need offline activities and it's funny to me also how many social media agencies never talk about it i mean Everybody who knows e-commerce says the same thing. The money is in the list, and mm. but they mean in the email list. So, and it's the same for politics. The votes are in the list. So if you do social media, create a base, fine, but move it towards your email list because that's how you can transform it into votes. Because people vote offline. They don't vote online. I mean, they're few countries where they do, but most places in the world, people vote offline. We're almost out of time. I want to get a few more things in here. So when you fly into a country in the third world developing country or in Europe or America, and you have to set up a campaign, are there challenges for you? Do you have people on the ground? How do you get your operation up and running? I'm not the one who really runs the campaign. And I think foreigners should not do that. I mean, there's uh, many Americans who work internationally. There are uh, Latino consultants who work in, in other Latin American countries, in African countries. So there's a vibrant international scene. But I think uh, for uh, us who work on that front, we shouldn't be the ones to run the campaign. We mm. are a secret choker, mm. if you want. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and often I compare my uh, role to the one of the Chester, uh, wh whose role, of course, was not to make the king laugh, but to tell the king what nobody else could tell him. And I think that's the great advantage that I have, because mm. if I come into a country, I don't have a history there and I don't have a future there. I don't have to, uh, in that sense, I'm really very free to speak the truth to uh, people who are not kings, but sometimes live like kings. And mm. actually, judging by their actions, I think that even Trump and Biden are not told the entire truth by their people. Interesting. So that's one great advantage. That's interesting. But it's true, no? I, I think you're correct. I think you are right. I, I agree with you that my sense is reading about their campaigns and listening to people who might be closer than I am. That is correct. So you can come in as an outsider, as it were, and say, this is absolutely crap. The public does not like your campaign. Your slogan does not work. It doesn't resonate. You can just tell them the brutal truth. Yes. And uh, I think that's a, a key benefit. And then it's actually why sometimes teams bring me in. Uh, mm. and, uh, and then, of course, I work together with local, I mean, for the uh, technical things to really conduct a survey, conduct focus groups. I work together with local people on the ground uh, because, again, you should not be the one to run things. You're a secret choker. Your work has helped turn around campaigns that were failing. Absolutely, yes. I mean, winning a presidential campaign was a, a big accomplishment, but there are others. I mean, I'm proud of 
mayoral elections because they're easier to control. And I think people, uh, I've ha I have a mayoral client uh, over many years and people, his opponents have literally moved out of the city repeatedly. I've helped people win, uh, uh, go from private citizen to running virtually unopposed. I've helped the... Uh, people resurrect from the political debt. So there, there are quite some accomplishments I'm proud of. There's so much we could cover. We really don't have time, but you even have a section on dealing with scandals. And uh, we mentioned Zelensky, obviously, but that, that was in your research and an historical analysis. But there are ways to rebuff um, scandals. And um, I urge readers to pick up your book, Beat the Incumbent have to ask you about uh, mainstream media. In your book, you say, for some time we were in a so-called pick-and-choose culture where voters chose the news items they found appealing. Now you say we live in an era when, due to algorithms, voters are increasingly only being served the news bites that they like. All this makes campaigning more worthwhile, maybe more exciting, but also more demanding than ever. Yes, and because we're no longer in an, in the old days, we used to uh, argue about uh, opinions. Now, <laughs> especially since the last U.S. election, we argue about facts very mm. passionately because mm. people are served different facts, and I think that makes uh, democracy really challenging. I mean, because. Um, we need a common set of facts to function as a democracy. Otherwise, it gets really difficult. And there are other challenges coming along the road. We can now make deep fakes of people, yeah. uh, even of dead people. With AI. With AI. Uh, yes. I mean, the, so I used to say that, take it easy, uh, people evolve as technology evolves. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I'm, I'm not sure that's 100% the case anymore. So we, we have to make sure we do evolve as technology evolves and not get uh, overwhelmed and sucked up by uh, technology. What, what, what the tools that technology makes possible. Uh, Lewis, I have to ask you this also. When you're doing um, your day-to-day -day absorption of what's going on in the globe, news, politics, and trying to keep up with the latest do you flick multi-channel? Do you go from Fox to CNN to CNBC, National Public Radio, um, uh, Conservative Radio, WOR? How do you... Because my frustration is that I, I surf. I surf the channels and in the internet. I'll stay on Fox for a little bit. I'll stay on CNBC. I'll stay on CNN. I'll go to the BBC so that I can make up my own, hopefully, reasonably informed analysis. And um, we could take the case of Israel... One network you could regard as being on Israel's side. Another network would be very anti-Israel. But just, just this massive bias. And it's really frustrating trying to get a handle on things. Yes, I do, however, try to force myself to listen to pieces and read things that I disagree with, at least at the beginning. Because mm. if you want to be an effective uh, spin doctor or consultant, you need to leave the bubble. Uh, mm -hmm. You have to uh, see your own weaknesses. You have to see your opponent's strengths. So otherwise, you're losing all effectiveness as a uh, 
uh, of uh, in, in during the analysis phase. No, of course we have strong convictions, but uh, you need cold surgical instruments to assess a case and be brutally honest. I mean, actually, I read um, uh, the biography about Roger Ailes, of course, mm. who uh, before mm. the founder of Fox News, actually, he was a, a political consultant. And it just struck me how brutally honest he, he was with his clients. And mm. I think it, it's really uh, something not to be forgotten. And uh, yes, I mean, I, I, I read a whole variety of things. I, I uh, lead, read less Swiss newspapers. I find mm -hmm. them a bit boring, but I read uh, international stuff. Like I use Twitter and then go from there to various links that I find interesting. I also like to listen to the source. I like to listen to a campaign speech. I like to read campaign speeches. I like to watch campaign ads. Sometimes I don't need a summary about it. I just need the raw material. I, I enjoy those. Call me a nerd, but I, re I really enjoy to read political speeches. <laughs> right now you're in Indonesia, presumably working on a campaign or meeting with clients. Or working out of here for somebody else or mm -hmm. waiting for a connecting flight. But okay. nice try, John. <laughs> well, I am a reporter by trade. What does your agenda look like over the next three, four months? Where will your travels take you? Uh, ho hopefully not too much travel because I, uh, as I get older, actually like to enjoy time in Switzerland again. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. from wherever I am, I will, uh, of course, follow the biggest fight the u.s presidential election and stay tuned mm. so the mm. what's your advice for would-be aspiring candidates who want to beat the incumbent or for the incumbent what's the final takeaway from Re dr lewis perron of course read my book <laughs> well do I, do, do I do i get them. do i get commission on sales <laughs> oh, 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 or or let me correct this buy all of them Mm. So your opponent cannot buy it. <laughs> Very clever. A great way to finish. And I look forward to catching up with you again, maybe after the general election of the US to get your take on where it went right or wrong for each candidate. And until then, Dr. Louis Perron, thank you for being my guest on Dig Life Deep. Thank you for having me. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com burndesk at gmail.com Subscribe for free.